If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that we've been going through a series in the book of Daniel. We've been wrapping our heads around fantastic visions of wild beasts and crazy things which words just kind of fail to describe. Um, now today we're going to take a break from Daniel. Uh, don't worry, we'll, we'll be back in Daniel next week when Alistair's back. Uh, but today we're going to look at something quite different. Uh, as they would say in Monty Python, and now for something completely different. You guys kind of chuckled. You guys get an extra hour of sleep, and you're always like really tired. I don't get that. Anyway, um, in our passage today, we find ourselves plunging headfirst into an ongoing conversation and really an escalating situation. Uh, Jesus has just performed some miracles, and everyone's amazed. And now he's starting to teach about what it means to follow him. And people are starting to get a little bit on edge. The ask that Jesus has demanded of them is a bit too big for them. And he's different from what people thought. And now that the crowds have gathered, who had gathered around him are starting to leave, and walking, uh, they're starting to leave and they're walking away because it, it's no longer convenient for them to follow Jesus. He's not the political hero that they'd been hoping for. And as everyone else is now walking away, Jesus turns to his disciples and he looks at them and he asks them just one simple question. Do you want to go away as well? It's a question which gets to the very core and heart of each of us. Because at its core, Jesus is asking us whether we actually trust him. He's asking us what it is that we're placing our hope and trust in to give us life. And he's asking whether it's really him. So the question I want for us to explore this morning is this. Do we trust that Jesus can actually give us life? Do we trust that Jesus can actually give us life? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 6. And if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we've got some gray Bibles in the back, and you're free to go grab one of those. And everything I'm going to say today will also be on the screen behind me. And if, if you don't own a Bible, uh, please take one of those gray Bibles home with you. That's a gift from us to you. Uh, we would actually really like you to do that so you can actually read God's word for yourself. Uh, and as the intern who usually has to put the box of Bibles away, I really appreciate it when that box gets a little bit lighter. Um, and it has been getting lighter, so thank you so much for taking them. Uh, but let's turn to, to John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who, would, who, would, who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted them by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, 
Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So look again with me at, uh, quickly at verses 66 and 67. It says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus turned to the twelve and said, Do you want to go away as well? We're already six chapters into this gospel. There's another 15 to go. And this is where it's come to. Like, this is pretty intense, right? Like People are just starting to walk away and leave. This is a lot of drama for being a quarter of the way through a book. Um, six chapters in, everyone's leaving. And now, Jesus is turning to his innermost circle of friends. And he's saying, he's asking them, do you want to leave too? One earth just happened for it to get this intense, this crazy, this quickly. Uh, so hold on to your seats quickly and buckle up, because in about four minutes, five minutes, I'm just going to skim through this whole chapter to get to this point. Um, so hold on. So at the beginning of chapter 6, we read about one of Jesus' most famous miracles. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Perhaps you've heard of this one. So beginning in verse 1, we read, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And then jumping to verse 5, Jesus said to his disciple Philip, where are we going to buy bread so that these people may eat? Because, you know, 5,000 people, you need to feed them somehow. And so Philip does some quick mental math in his head and his, his mind just kind of implodes. He, he doesn't know. He says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. Now, a denarius was a single day's wage for a common laborer. So he's doing his math. He's like, even if I would work 200 days this year, like, I wouldn't even begin to be able to feed this huge group of people. And so then, as things happen in the Bible, this little boy shows up and just upstages everyone. And he gives Jesus his lunchbox. Five barley loaves and two fish. Think five small pitas and, and two sardines. It's kind of like the, the ancient world's version of the kids' lunchables. And, and with that small offering, Jesus blesses and multiplies the food so that all 5,000 people can eat. And then verse 14 we read, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And then in verse 15, So perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. After all of this happens, the disciples take their boats and go back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And we learn that at night, Jesus walks in water to, to catch them up, just as people do. Uh, they get back to the other shore and the crowds follow them. And then Jesus starts to teach about what it means to actually follow him. In verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. It's like he's kind of saying, you guys are just following me because you want to use me. To use me for your own comfort, for your own benefits, and for your own schemes. You're not following me for me, you're following me for you. And then he steps it up another notch. In verse 35 he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, 
And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then in verse 41, people start to get a little antsy about this. And so it says that the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. So then Jesus escalates it and challenges those people who are grumbling and says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And that was kind of hard for them to hear. Because it just sounded like Jesus said, hey, you guys need to become cannibals and actually like, start eating me. And they don't take well to that. Um, and so they, they let him know. In verse 60, we read, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Because you see, they had wanted Jesus on their own terms. Many of them had been wanting this political hero to rally behind, a new warrior sent from God to f- free them from the political reign of the Romans. Uh, the, the New Testament scholar named Leon Morris writes that it had looked as though Jesus might become the head of a very popular movement. But then people begin to see, began to see what Jesus really stood for, and they didn't like it. The preceding sections of this chapter have shown how first the multitude and then some of the disciples were repelled. And then in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You can't follow someone you're not walking with. And they had once walked with Jesus, but they had stopped. Because Jesus wasn't who they expected. Jesus wouldn't play their political games. And Jesus had asked them to do something which made them feel uncomfortable and to come to the end of themselves. For them to follow Jesus and to keep walking with him they had to walk where he was going to walk. And they had to go where he was going to lead them. And they had different ideas. They wanted Jesus to follow them where they walked and to go where they took him. And they completely misunderstood who he was. And now that everyone else has turned back and gone away, Jesus turns to the 12 and he asks them, do you want to go away as well? Jesus is asking them whether they really trust him. He's asking them what it is that they're placing their hope and their trust in for, to give them life. He's asking them whether it's actually him or whether it's something else. And Jesus asks us the exact same thing. Do you want to go away as well? You and I, do we actually believe and know that Jesus is the source of life? Do we really trust him to give us life? How do we respond to Jesus' question? Because we can't follow someone we're not walking with. So are we trying to follow Jesus on our own terms? Or are we actually going to follow him on his terms? Do we trust that Jesus can actually give us life? In verse 68, Peter replies, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
where else were they going to go to? I mean, they could go back to what they used to do beforehand. They could have gone back to being fishermen and tax collectors. And actually, later in the gospel, they do just that. They go back to fishing. Um, they go back to the life they once knew. In verse 21.3, we, we read about that. It didn't go very well for them. We read, uh, Simon Peter said to them, that is to these other disciples, I'm going to go fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat. But that night, they caught nothing. When they go back to the life they once knew, it doesn't go well for them. Lord, to whom shall we go? To what shall we go? Where shall we go? Because it doesn't work for them without Jesus. And I wonder, to whom do we go? Where do we go when we don't want to walk with Jesus in our daily life? What are the other things that we go to and that we hope and trust will give us life? Maybe we're trusting in our bank accounts and our bank statements to give us life and hoping that we'll not just be financially secure, but actually wealthy. And so we're working all through the hours of the night, gunning for the hope of a year-end promotion. Or maybe we're trusting in drugs or alcohol or sex to give us life. Or maybe we're binging on entertainment. And we're seeking to escape from the realities of our daily living and trying in some capacity to be numbed from life. Or maybe we're just trusting in a relationship to give us life and hoping that if this relationship could work or if I could just be a better parent or a better child or a better lover or a better friend, then maybe I'll experience life. Or maybe we're just cynical and jaded. And maybe we've become a stoic and just said, screw it all. We've cut ourselves off from everything and refuse to let anything or anyone affect us or impact us. Because maybe I can't control what others do or what's going on around me, but at least I can have control over myself and how much other people can influence my life. These are just some of the ways that I can think of that people try and, and save and find their life. Whatever it is that they think will make life worth living. Or at least bearable to live. And perhaps we don't always consciously think about it that way. But we're looking for a way to live and to keep living. Whether it's looking to live by escaping the harshness of reality or, or looking to live by pursuing things that will give us pleasure and satisfaction. Or looking to live by making ourselves comfortable and secure. These places we go and these things we turn to are our attempts to find life. We pursue after these things because deep down, we're all yearning to live and to come alive. But I wonder, how much joy are we finding in these other pursuits and promises that we're chasing? I wonder, how much life are we really finding as we chase success and escape and pleasure and satisfaction? And you know what? Like, maybe these things do bring us some joy. Maybe they can hold us over for a bit and make us feel satisfied for a moment. But in the stillness and in the quiet, when we let ourselves be honest, do we ever find that sort of nagly feeling that we're being haunted by this hollowness inside? In, in Jeremiah 2 verse 13, it, it says, For my people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for, for themselves cisterns or, or wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, God's people Israel had, had tried to find life apart from God. And not only did it not work, not only did these wells, these things that they put their, their hope in, leak and just not satisfy, their act of turning away from God to pursue after something else is, is described by God as evil. And in their pursuit of trying to find something else, not only did they discover that it couldn't give them life, but it was cutting them off from the very source of life. In Psalm 1611, uh, King David writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. You can't get fuller than, than full. And you don't get longer than forever, right? And in the presence of God, there is joy to be found. The fullness of joy. And where there is fullness of joy, there is certainly, most certainly, life to abound. There's a theologian named uh, Miroslav Volf who has recently been spending a lot of time thinking about what it is that makes for a good life. And what he said is that joy is the crown of a good life. For him, we cannot speak of joy without making reference to this thing called the good life. And we can't speak of the good life in its fullness without speaking also about joy. And so Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life. It's in knowing Jesus that we find this path of life. And it's in his company that we experience the fullness of joy. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But now, maybe, maybe you're hearing this and you're thinking, well, that's great. Jesus can, can give me life and, and joy. But what about other religions? Can't, can't they do the same too? I mean, sure, okay, may, maybe some of the things that people pursue after in this life, like, yeah, that lets them down. Maybe it works for a bit, but fails. But what about other faiths? Like, can't other religions give joy in life too? And now, I don't pretend to be an expert in other religions, but I've met some people who are. Uh, this past summer, I was invited to attend a, a, a conference at Yale University on the topic of joy. And one of the main sessions was a panel discussion about joy in other religious traditions and other philosophical streams and perspectives. Uh, the panel included a Christian theologian, Mirza Wolf, who's on the far left, uh, the guy I just mentioned earlier, a humanist thinker, Anthony Pinn, is there. This is going left to right. A Muslim theologian, Prince Ghazi bin Muhammad, who's actually the personal advisor to King Abdullah II, the King of Jordan, uh, and a Hindu scholar and practitioner, Anatan Rambashan. And as these four leading intellectuals and scholars talked about joy from their own religious and philosophical perspectives, I was really struck by how distinctive and different Christian joy is from any of these other perspectives that were being described. Anthony Pinn said that from his humanist perspective, joy isn't really a thing that can be attained. All of life, he said, is a vain struggle, like the ancient myth of Sisyphus, who had to roll a boulder up a hill for all of eternity. And now he admitted that his perspective on life is pretty bleak and doesn't give him very much comfort, especially compared to the other traditions and religious perspectives that were being shared. But for humanists like Penn, 
the experience of joy is it's a fleeting and a rather pointless thing. Prince Ghazi said that from his Islamic perspective, what Christians mean by joy is what Muslims mean by happiness. But he said that we can never know happiness in this lifetime. He said that happiness is permanent and we can't be happy unless happiness cannot be taken away from us. And so for Muslims like Prince Ghazi, happiness can only truly be experienced in eternity. It cannot be experienced here and now. And Atand Rambashan said that from his Hindu perspective, the closest analog that he can think of to joy is the desire and pursuit of this kind of fullness. And I'll confess, I didn't quite understand everything he, he was talking about with that. But from what I gathered, it seemed pretty clear that for Hindus like Rambashan, this, this type of fullness must be pursued and attained by some sort of human effort. But Christian joy isn't really like any of that. Uh, one theologian has described Christianity as a unique religion of joy. And unlike humanism, joy for Christians is not a fleeting or pointless experience amidst the Sisyphean struggle of life. We read in the book of Hebrews that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. Jesus bore the cross for joy. And so for Christians, joy is not fleeting or pointless. Joy is the very motive of our salvation. And while, like Muslims, we kind of believe that we will experience the fullness of joy in heaven, unlike Islamic teaching, we can experience true joy now. We can experience joy now because our joy is rooted in the accordant right ordering of ourselves with God through what Jesus did for us on the cross. How Jesus died for our sins so that we have a relationship with him. We don't need to wait until eternity because for Christians, joy can begin today. And unlike Hinduism, joy is not something we need to strive towards or attain by our own effort. Suddenly there are some practices which we can do to try and help increase our joy in our daily living. But for Christians, joy is a gift from God, and it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. We don't work to attain it. It's a gift. It's one of the gifts which flows from the experience of salvation. In a salvation which we cannot earn or deserve, but which we are freely offered by the spilt blood of Jesus. So as far as I can tell, there is something unique about the life that Jesus gives us. There's something different about his joy. And there's something different about his message. And there's something very different about his salvation. I really like how the theologian Carl Brayton puts it. He said, if salvation is the experience of illumination, then perhaps Buddha saves. If salvation is the experience of union with the cosmic all, then perhaps Hinduism saves. If salvation consists in being faithful to one's ancestors, then perhaps Shintoism saves. If salvation is being freed from the oppression of the bourgeoisie, then perhaps Marxism saves. If salvation is material well-being, then perhaps capitalism saves. If salvation means feeling good, then perhaps there is salvation not only outside of Christ, but outside of religion in general. But if salvation is liberation from the powers of sin and death, then only Jesus saves. And so Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have believed and we have come to know. The, the Protestant theologian John Calvin writes about this, and he says, 
The word believe is put first here because the obedience of faith is the beginning of true understanding. Or rather, faith is itself truly the eye of the mind. But at once, knowledge is added, which distinguishes faith from erroneous false opinions. Knowledge is joined to faith because we have a sure and undoubted conviction of God's truth. Not in the same way as human sciences are apprehended, but when the Spirit seals it in our hearts. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. Now, that, that phrase isn't used very much in the New Testament. In fact, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, that phrase only really comes up as a title to Jesus when he's interacting with demons and they're cowering in fear of him and saying, what do you want with us, Jesus? Uh, one, one commentator explains that this is a potent and unusual title, one used throughout the Old Testament for God, who is the Holy One of Israel, who defends his people and redeems them. The same commentator then goes on to say that this is a profound and important thought, and one we will meet again and again in this gospel. God's entry into the world in Christ is not the only act of grace. God must also empower men and women to see it and embrace it. Humanity cannot defeat the darkness that holds them in its grip. Only God possesses this sort of power. The power that can free us. The power that can save us. The power that embraces us. That's who Jesus is. He's the Holy One. The Holy One of God. And that's a staggering thing for Peter to say. When Jesus asks, do you want to go away as well? Peter replies, to whom shall we go? To whom else shall we go? Where can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. There's nowhere else for us to go to find life. And we believe that you are the Savior. But then Jesus' response isn't quite what you were expecting, was it? It's not what I was expecting. Look at me at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. What? Oh, good. You're, you're going to keep coming along with me. That, that's great. Also, one of you is a devil. <laughs> what? What's that about? That's, that's kind of jarring, isn't it? I mean, Peter's words from just a moment before are staggering. But they mean nothing without this. Verse 71 explains that Jesus was speaking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That statement only makes sense in light of the betrayal. It only makes sense in light of the cross. For it was by the cross that Jesus proved these words to be true. It was by his crucifixion that Jesus proved he had the words of eternal life. It was through the cross that Jesus proved he is the Holy One of God. Jesus asks the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And they say no. But the thing is, they did all end up leaving him. They left him at the betrayal. When this friend that they've been following around for three years gets arrested and brought before a court and then beaten and hung on a cross. They all left him. They fled. They hid. They denied him. 
Jesus died hanging on a cross alone. And there he bore the weight of the penalty of our sins. There he poured out his life to free us from our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could experience his eternal life and to know that he is the Holy One of God. And he died. And then three days later, he rose again. He came back to life and so defeated the power of sin and death once and for all. And then he found those disciples who had wandered away. He went after those friends who betrayed him. And he revealed himself to them. And he forgave them. Because his economy is an economy of grace. And his gift of salvation is the gift of eternal life. As a former pastor of mine likes to say, in Jesus, there is nothing you have done which can make God love you any less. And there's nothing you could do that could God make God love you any more than he does right now. His love for you is complete, and you don't need to earn it, and you can't lose it. His love for you is unconditional. And Jesus welcomes us back with open arms. Every time, he welcomes us back and he forgives, and he died for that sin too, even that sin. He is the good shepherd who will leave the 99 to go after the one to bring that sheep, that one he loves, back to the fold. So Jesus asks his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And they answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I'll, I'll ask you, do you trust that Jesus can actually give you life? Have you come to believe and know, like Peter, that he is the Holy One of God? Would you walk with him wherever he leads you? And will you trust him? Will you bow your heads and pray with me?